0: Before that, though, I'm going to play a special message for you. Okay, we got you, kid. Ready? Hi, I'm Abby Hoffman on the run, just listening to WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor, Michigan.
1: Good afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Rachel Harkai. Our guest today is poet Christine Hume. Christine has published two collections of poetry. Her first book, Musca Domestica, was the winner of the Barnard New Women's Poets Prize. And her most recent collection, Phrenia, was the winner of the Green Rose Award and Small, Press, Small Traffic Press's 2005 Best Book of the Year Award. Her work has been published in Chicago Review, Denver Quarterly, The Iowa Review, New American Writing, McSweeney's, and Verse. Her poems have been anthologized in such anthologies as Best American Poetry. American Poetry, The Next Generation, and Legitimate Dangers, American Poets of the New Century. Christine has written for the triweekly online poetry review, The Constant Critic. Her work has been translated into German, Dutch, and Slovenian. Thanks for joining us today. I'm really glad to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, I thought that we would um, just jump right into it. I was hoping that you would read us a poem from um, your first book, Musca Domestica.
0: You want me to read Mimicry? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the title, Mimicry. And it's uh, loosely based on the idea of Batesian mimicry when flies imitate other insects so they don't get eaten. My fly fretted like a secret. My fly was made flamboyant and right. My fly furnished an alibi... After many pleasing relations, my heckler bride, my flight towards lips, lip gloss and shoddy dim rooms. My fly paid attention, soaked in your westerns and many-minded museums. My, li- my fly looked from the original eye. My fly was no action painter, no dandy photographer sighing over his sorriest of matters. My fly wanted to be you or to mock you. My fly recorded laughter and told the audience I was dying. My fly understood about zeal, what a suitcase on the bed meant. My fly burrowed into your hair as if it were trying to love you. For five thousand seconds, my fly begged you to cut it out. My fly was not by heart. My fly backtracked the puzzling narrations. My fly had been misled. My shrunken raven, my imperfect bee. My fly didn't know what it was until it purred sharply in the dark, lighting up the room, until it made the room shake. My fly stayed on the wall and vomited. My fly asked you the way out once. Do you remember what you said? My fly never again complained that a window was too close to see. My fly fell faster. When you looked, my fly hurried to disappear into everything, sideways grown. My fly was the omniscience of an insanely happy town. My fly traded what can't be ahead for what can't go on unrecognized.
1: Thank you. That was poet Christine Hume reading from her book, Musca Domestica. Uh, I was really hoping that you would read that poem in particular. Um, first, because I really I really enjoyed the sound of it. Um, the anaphora, the repeated use of the fly um, as the opening words of your sentences. But um, also it was one of the more overt examples of this fly motif you have running through that book. And um, the translation of Musca domestica literally is house fly. Is that right? That's right. You've got um. I mean, you've got bugs in the book, like literally, <laughs> you've got images of bugs in the book. But there's also um, a few more subtle ways in which you play with the idea of flies, um, fly paper, fly leaf. I was wondering if you talk about that a little bit.
0: Well, I wanted to to be impossible for anybody to read the fly literally, as in like Ted Hughes's Crow or. Um as a you know it seems like the the natural recourse to read it as like an actual um fly- uh domestic uh house fly and um one of the th- the poem in the book true and obscure definitions of fly, domestic and otherwise really the point of that poem is to kind of undermine um the defining impulse of the title so just to spin out as many variations as I possibly could on the idea of fly and the way that the language kind of mutates and buzzes around uh, within the sound of the fly itself. I just thought of the fly as a kind of um, trickster figure itself, so of course it wouldn't have any stable sense of meaning um, for very long, and also as a kind of Collector of material from various worlds and various pasts and futures and uh, sources.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely got that impression, and um, you've got the idea. I mean, the flyleaf in in your book has one of them has a dedication, and one has an epigram, and I really liked the idea um, that sort of ran through your book of the flyleaf as sort of a fly paper, just catching these little. Um, these little thoughts and ideas that were sort of buzzing around space. Um, You've got a lot of, you've got a lot of epigrams in there. Um, Are there any in particular that, I don't know, stuck with you uh, after you finished the book or any particular influences that really shaped how um, you put the book together?
0: Oh, what a good question. I mean, I I think I was so heavily steeped in reading for um, my PhD when I was writing this book that um, it was just inevitable that there was going to be lots of echoes and um, traces of all the things I was uh, reading. I was just listening to NPR on the way over here, and Ian McEwan, did you hear this? Mm -hmm. Was was outed in uh, his novel Atonement for Borrowing Heavily. Um, from a romance uh, writer's depiction of nursing. And um, I I think it's such a, like, almost a humorous controversy um, because, I mean, on one hand, I understand the seriousness of plagiarism. On the other hand, I think all writers are definitely steeped in the writers that they love. And we learn by imitation and by trying to, um, you know, write better than ourselves and Mm -hmm. and often look for other people's sources for doing that so um the book is just steeped in a a lot of named and unnamed sources and that's i guess kind of like what i was trying to get at in the notes to uh the fly paper palimpsest so you know the fly is a figure that collects and redistributes all these different fragments um I'm a kind of collage artist uh, spinning out several selves to bring back any or break any bounded idea of self. So I would say it was mostly just a kind of being steeped in as much reading as I possibly could, you know, at the time. I mean, reading that I both did for my own pleasure, but also reading that I... um, did for classes reading I did for my comprehensive exam, so it's just sort of like all the different ways of re- reading I did as a writer, just which is a totally different kind of reading I think, um, where you don't have to be accountable. For, or also, reading I did as a as a teacher, you know, as um, a TA, so um, it's just inevitably, I guess. Uh, influenced by that act and its many ways of uh, manifesting itself. Mm-hmm.
1: Your um, your book really got me thinking about the idea of dedication, um, like dedicating works to people. And um, I felt like a lot of those little fragments you had from people were sort of implicit, implicit dedications or praises of those who had Said things that you had wanted to say, or maybe said things that you could say, but they said it first, <laughs> things like that. Oh, absolutely! I mean, that happens all the time when you when you're
0: like uh, reading, and then you, yeah, you see somebody has written something that you know you have written also, but it's much better. Uh, so that always comes as a quandary. Like, what do I do now? <laughs> do I do I cite this as if it was my inspiration, or? Um, but are you talking about just the the fragments of other texts in it or the actual dedications like this poem is for so and so
1: mostly the fragments mostly the fragments but they seem to run along the same I mean they they seem to run run along the same vein in in the way that you know a person that you know can inspire you as much as just a little fragment of text um, from someone that you've never met But, um...
0: That's true. And a lot of my really good
1: friends are writers, too. So it's hard to distinguish the two sometimes. mm -hmm. It's interesting that you bring up the concept of, um... I mean, the idea of plagiarism. How do you deal with citing other people's work? How did you deal with, um... all these different sources that you used? Well... I mean, it's...
0: It's an infinitely interesting question. Um, and I... For me, I, uh... I didn't feel necessarily like obligated, I guess, to cite all the sources because I think, like, I was trying to say that any act of writing is necessarily an imitation of something, or you know, it it really is uh, a fuzzy line, oftentimes, between what you cite and uh, what you don't cite. And I just thought it was it fit the book in terms of its motif, you know, to acknowledge some of the sources. And I, I personally sometimes get distracted by a lot of um, epigraphs and dedications, and I guess names in the book. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to downplay, you know, uh, the fact that Henri Mouchot said this or Sylvia Plass said this, mm-hmm. and just let the words be, and then have a place where you can find the rest of it. But I feel like some of that is such about so much about placing oneself, you know, in the midst of these writers or trying to, like, gather your tribe around you. And um, and that's why in Alaska Franny I don't have any of that. I decided just to not, I mean, it, it's also not a book that has a lot of um, conscious uh, collage uh, fragments from other sources, but um, I decided also not to have any kind of... Um, history um on the surface like in musca domestica with all the um other sources and other um genres that are being uh
1: provoked mm-hmm. i was um i was reading a review of your newer book Alaskafrenia, um and one of the reviewers commented on i guess i guess the tone of musca domestica and um I mean, like you said, it's full of, it's just full of all these um, ideas and manipulations of the fly, all these uh, different citations um, from fascinating sources, but they almost seem to imply that it was a little, a little unfeeling. And I was surprised because I didn't, I didn't get that from the book when I read it, but um, I I felt like your poems were so, I mean, they weren't Weeping over the page or anything, but there was definitely implicit subtle emotion in there. And, you know, as a poet, I feel like we're constantly walking a fine line between what's um, intellectually captivating and what's alienating and what's emotionally captivating and what's sappy. How do you deal with those? I mean, how do you deal with those issues in your writing? Oh, such a good question. Um, I think for one,
0: Thing I, how how one reads emotion is something that's taught, and so I think a lot of uh, readers of poetry have very specific ways that um, that they feel emotion should be transmitted in a poem, and um, and if it doesn't do that, then it's it's lacking heart or vulnerability, uh, or emotionality and. For me, there are lots of ways in which to express emotion and um, direct expression of it hardly ever works for me, I guess. So I like to swerve it into, I mean, that's what the fly is all about, right? Like the sense of direction and indirection kind of uh, clashing into each other and the fly's sense of indirection buzzing around the room. It always seems like it's coming towards you. and it never does at the same time. That's the kind of atmosphere I wanted in terms of uh, an emotionality. And um, I think, you know, emotion is a cultural construct in a way that people don't necessarily acknowledge. I mean, they do, people understand that about the intellect through and through, but we like to think of our emotions as, as something more pure than that. And I think if it doesn't Immediately provoke the emotions, then some readers think it's not there. It's not something to be fought for and won, just like an intellectual mm-hmm. experience.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, we're going to take a short break. Uh, you're listening to the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. We'll be right back. Cool.
2: It all against the sea to have a better life.
1: Listening to the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM, Ann Arbor. I'm Rachel Hargi, and I'm here talking with poet Christine Hume. Um, you brought in a you brought in a recording. I'm pretty excited about it. It's uh, of a poem from of you reading from your newest book, Alaskaphrenia, and it's the, the opening um, the opening poem from that collection, right? Titled I, "Comprehension Questions." That's right. Okay, so we're going to listen to that. This is Christine Hume reading "Comprehension Questions."
3: What kind of phantom is the ship? Where does the girl hide her great distances? Accordingly, what is the rate to multiply by to find the intense sensitivity of minor characters? How do the men abandon ship? Why do they trouble the forest with their strange butterflies? ...and huge suns full of complete daylight... ...what role does the dog play in developing catastrophe... ...if the setting permitted biological time... ...would a red shift through the captain's mirage... ...what dark authority lurks among the unpruned spruce... ...whose foreshadowing crawls out and what sets it off... ...do you believe the wave is not a girl in furs... Is this a comedy or tragedy of secret motions? Why should a Zephyr so rarely intervene? Does the stormy girl's beauty suggest something about the captain? Why do his arrows ricochet wildly just before the target? Meanwhile, what does the girl's fear become when she turns around? Which constellation best fits the story? Does the captain arrest the ice horse? What fantasy freezes the dark around him? What kind of ship was the phantom? When does it matter? When can you deceive? Why do the men take the tusk and shank inside? Does the narrator gain sight by his frustration, humiliation, torture, and debt? Which prophecies help helped the girl court the ship? Is anything more grotesque? In the face of human
1: ecstasy. That was Christine Hume reading her poem "Comprehension Questions." Um, so that was a little bit of a manipulated reading. Tell Slightly. me about yeah. Tell me about the creative process that went. Back oh, it into was. That.
0: It's actually. Um, I usually when I give readings, I'll read with that, so it's sort of like an around, and hmm. so I so. I'll start just a little bit off from when I'm reading it on the recording. So I'm saying so it has a kind of like echo chamber effect and um because I wanted it to sound sort of like um an internal dialogue and like what Beckett calls the madhouse of the skull, mm-hmm. you know. So um I started to do these kinds of um recordings just because I was giving so many readings and it just seemed odd to me that we have all this technology and most people, when they give poetry readings, um, they'll just give a reading and it's not necessarily anybody's um, forte. You know, if you spend most of your time in your room alone writing <laughs> and mm-hmm. then you have to, you know, give a, a public reading, it can, can seem sw- slightly jarring. Um, so I just wanted to experiment with the all the free technologies that we have available and see what other kinds of dimensions could be brought to the poetry reading and um, to just kind of engage people more. A lot of people would complain that uh, in, in poetry readings they just feel like this sense of wash. You know, they don't really feel like they can fully concentrate to one poem or you know mm-hmm. there's not a sense especially if you don't know the poet's work it can feel really overwhelming mm-hmm. because most poetry is probably meant to be read on the page unless it's like clearly a performance style um, mm-hmm. or spoken word poetry so you know to be expected to like get it in one reading and then you're on to the next one and when if you had the book itself you um, You would be, you know, going back and forth within a poem for like 10 minutes or, you know, 20 minutes as long as it took. So anyway, um, I mean, that's a fine experience just to feel like kind of in a sea of language and um, trying to enjoy it. But a lot of people feel frustrated with it. So I wanted to try to bring in other context clues. And I think that people feel just naturally more comfortable listening to music and they don't necessarily feel like they have to get it, you mm-hmm. know, or have to understand it to enjoy it. Um so that was my idea originally, um just to try to help people relax and just enjoy the experience of the reading and so that was just, you know, a um guitar, a um me reading facts about Alaska, like toned down and sort of sped up, Mm -hmm. and then just reading the poem over top of it without Mm -hmm. any other manipulation. So Mm -hmm. it's just three tracks. It's pretty simple.
1: Yeah, that's been a question that's been on my mind a lot lately, how we deal with um, the contrast between poetry being read on the page and poetry being read aloud. Do you feel like your work is more meant to be um, exclusively on the page or exclusively read aloud or somewhere in between? Well, I would say not somewhere in between, but both. I mean,
0: I am really interested in the music of um, the poem and how it sounds when it's read aloud. Um, I will often read uh, work aloud as I'm composing it, and actually that's part of the process for me is giving readings um, in order to kind of like check the poem in some ways. Does it feel like a if you if you read it in public it's a totally different experience than reading it to yourself so um to see how it it comes out i guess and a lot of times there's this kind of platonic um way i hear the poem that i can never really get when i'm actually reading it and i'm not you know i'm not a trained reader so mm-hmm. maybe if i had more skill i could do it but uh oftentimes i can't so that's another reason i i would like to bring in more of an audio experience, more of a fuller
1: sensory experience. Do you feel like, I mean, it's pretty much generally accepted that there is a lot of difficulty surrounding poetry read aloud, especially when you're unfamiliar with the work, as you were saying. Do you feel like there's anything that can be gleaned um, exclusively from listening to a poem read aloud without reading it on the page? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, you,
0: you, you mute one sense in order to um, cultivate the other one. And uh, I think that just like listening to poetry read in a foreign language, it forces you to listen to it um, on a totally musical level. So oftentimes it does feel like a foreign language when you're listening to a poet read for the first time, you're not familiar with their work, You, you haven't quite understood how they're using language. Uh, and it can be just a really beautiful thing just to hear the way that mu- uh, that that language can create different kinds of music and different effects just by um, the sound systems mm-hmm. and the pure joy and love that people have of, you know, making sounds.
1: Yeah. I read, um, I was reading another interview that you had um, done online and the interviewer asked you what. It was something like, what was the first poem that you fell in love with, and you mentioned uh, that at a young age, you were really enamored with mnemonic devices, like, please excuse my dear Aunt Sally, and every good boy deserves fudge. Um What are we going to do about my very educated mother just (laughs) served a slice of pizza? Now that Pluto's out of the mix, (laughs) Um, it's clear that sounds really important. That sound is really important to your poetry. Uh, You actually teach a course on sound poetry, is that right? I do. Yes, just finished um, yesterday. That's fascinating. Um, I brought in a little a little piece by his name is Christian Christian Book and he's a sound poet. Uh, If I'm correctly informed, he's one of the people that you're particularly interested in is that
0: right Yeah I mean I I like his work a lot I think it's really uh interesting and he's a I've never heard him perform live but I think his CD is it does
1: the work justice Okay well let's listen to um it's called and something else by Christian Book
2: Wazo
0: And sometimes Syzygy, pix, gyp, gypsy, pygmy, gyms, jinxsync, tricyc, tristics, spyglyph, slicell, brrrr, grrrr, glicell, fly flyby, skyby, tis, tisk, tisk. nimnimps nymphs, hmm, myz, sty, styreal, fryfeard's lymphcyst, weirds, which lynch, rye, mythylinks, cry by, cum, mm, sticks, mist, winds, dry, dryly, shy, by, shhh, myth, hymns, thy, my, my, rhythms.
1: <laughs> yeah, that one that one makes me giggle a little bit. Um I'm curious too how something like that that evokes, you know, such a spontaneous uh reaction of laughter, it seems sort of ludicrous. Uh how that informs your poetry Well, I think um
0: I mean the tie between lucidity and ludic na- nature of language is really important to me and I think um Playfulness and just having fun with sounds is also um, really key to understanding, like, my compositional process. Um, I like to just try to see how many sounds I can keep going. Um, So, I mean, I I don't write poetry like Christian Book. I mean, you know, but I do love listening to him and poets like Carolyn Bergvall or um Tracy Morris um a lot of uh poets that uh do mostly kind of performance work um and i think that his, books um the tension that he creates between a kind of seriously structured poem and a and a, a playful uh, interior is really important because mm-hmm. I th- both those things are really important to me as well. Uh, a sense of something that's highly structured that you can have fun in, mm-hmm. and um, fi- and and because of the playful nature of the the start of it, especially, you trick yourself almost into finding new roots of meaning and new understandings.
1: Mm-hmm. Linked sort of peripherally to sound uh, in poetry as form, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about the form of your poems. You've got a lot of different structures in which you place your words, like comprehension questions, for example. Is just you know it's a list of questions. You've got some poems that border on prose. Um, there's a few that are dramatic dialogues between um, several characters speaking, but maybe they're not speaking to one another necessarily. <laughs> Um, if I were to ask you if the word omnidirectional had any significance to your poetry, what would you say? Fuck <laughs> you. i <can't remember. laughs>
0: not allowed to say that, I forgot. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was just me sneezing. Um,
0: <laughs>
2: uh,
0: yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that to a certain extent. I mean, um, it's not in terms of its topic, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a sense of of, of, of a gravity, um, I think, that in the theme itself. Is he going to go? <laughs>
1: I don't know. Don't worry about it. <laughs>
0: um, uh, so I like to... I definitely like to be really exploratory in terms of form, although the work that I'm working on now is less so. Um, I was interested in Alaskaphrania in trying to explore a lot of non-fictional type um, genres and uh, seeing, you know, what would happen if you put, quote-unquote, poetry in a, in a different container mm-hmm. um, and trying to work with the idea of Alaska um, in a kind of, you know, in the same sort of like serious textbook manner um, but with a playful... Uh, interior. Like mm-hmm. so Sort of empty out that uh, container and see what happened if you filled it up with something entirely different.
1: Yeah, there were some um, there were a few poems in Alaskaphronia that ran in parallel columns down the page, which I loved but I had no idea um, how, to read, how to read them. I almost, I thought about being difficult and having you read them <laughs> to see what you would do because I, I wasn't sure but I found myself going back um, and reading them every way that I could possibly read them, like left column, right column, all of the left column, all of the right column, from bottom to top. And I felt like they made more sense that way. How, in- yeah. how intentional was that? Was that um, a huge process for you, or is that something that, that arose more out of chance? Well, I, I am interested in the idea of frustrating people's
0: normative reading experience. So trying to create... Um, attention about how do I read this maybe can supplant, like, what does it mean? See what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So that your focus as a reader is not so much nervously trying to um, get the poem, rather is on how do I go about reading it? It's the same thing in, I think, Musca Domestica, the middle section, has um, uh, notes, at the at the end of the the poems that are meant to substitute for various words and i mean those to be read in many different ways too mm-hmm. as like little poems that dropped out of the big poem but also when i read those aloud i just read them straight through in a really linear fashion but I also ideally would have people go and read them, and, and there are millions of permutations if they're that interested, mm-hmm. but also let people off the hook if they're not.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, we're going to take another short break. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. We'll be right back.
2: It's dreamy weather. We're on. You waved your crooked wand along an icy pond. With a frozen moon A murder of silhouette Crows I saw And the tears on my face And the skates on the pond, They spell Alice
1: You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm Rachel Harkai, and I'm talking with poet Christine Hume. Um, let's talk about snow. <laughs> There's no snow on the ground. It's December. Right. You just, I mean, you wrote a book of poems about Alaska. Are you a snow lover? Um, actually not. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, kind of, I kind of figured. Um, I kind of figured from the book. I've always lived in cold places,
0: but I don't really... I have a kind of, um, fear of the cold and, um, I would say almost like a sexual attraction to it because of that fear, you know, it's like something that excites me because I don't understand it. I don't like it. And <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so, um, so that's partly what fuels the, the book itself. It's also just, um, you know, if you're just trying to think of, of, of a place that's other in America mm-hmm. and, um, And it's a perfect kind of, you know, landscape to kind of project anything you want onto Mm -hmm. it. So it has that, like, blank quality to it. Yeah,
1: I wouldn't say that it was so much about the snow as it was just in the snow. (laughs) It was just in that landscape, in that trope. Um, But I was hoping you would read just one more poem for us from Alaskaphrenia. Which one did you want me to read? Yeah, I have not yet told you.
0: I have not yet told you what Alaska means to me. Came out of the sea a white man with a pick hole between his eyes. Havoc spilled from that hole, pale monkeys with ice needles dripping. Ice fangs, depending from their guts, supped water straight from his dead neck. I asked the dockmaster, what gives? But he could no longer see upside down. Swung my arms to start circulation, so hollowed out a thunder room, where white bees wolfed down the meat spellbound. I discharged the bad shovelers then, no use asking yum, or a buzzing skull hive. Flap comes of it, ditto for worm. Through the furs came a gull mean with arrows. It hit me as if it were part of me and did not see me. Hit me with its edible heart. I muled at sixteen identical turtles. Bottomed in the boat, but no. Lemmings began back and forth. They chafed no matter how I think. use the same monkey... Use the same money you do. Still, the volume of nothing increases. When I take a swig of it, goddamn if I know, had a spree up to here and swapped muffs with another daughter, who could who could force voices from ice. She faked a scientific reason, then searched my face for explanations. Half hound, half harpoon head, half homewrecker. I mistook myself for the beloved, until I saw a way through the third eye. Iron caribou came attracted by flashbacks from an ancient blood disease. I suck their udders so hard as if that would give word.
1: Thanks. That was uh, Christine Hume reading from her book, Alaskaphrenia. So tell me about that title, Alaskaphrenia.
0: Oh, um, Alaskaphrenia is um, just tries to, to combine, make a compound word out of the state of Alaska, though clearly the book really doesn't have anything to do with um, that per se. It's just an uh, attempt to internalize it um, and also to uh, write about its sort of special place in our national consciousness. And uh, phrenia, which just means mental disturbance, and um, So there you have the, I guess, internalization of an external place Mm -hmm. and how it like mutates when it becomes absorbed in an
1: individual psyche. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I felt like this was very much an Alaska of the mind, of your mind. And strangely, it really reminded me a lot of um, Wallace Stevens' sort of floridophilia that he has (laughs) in a lot of his poems, but where his obsession is with this love of this warm wet place yours is like it's not an Alaskan cruise it's a cold place a dark place and you really take this darkness and you skew the philia into this phrenia yeah that's a good way to put it yeah well said um I mean aside from the title many words in the book sort of hint at or just directly um, state Uh, disease, death, you've got the disease of bodies, the the death of towns, things like that. Where did this darkness come from? Was it all just from your mind?
0: (laughs) Ask my mother. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, um, you know, I don't think of it as a particularly dark book although those things have been pointed out to me (laughs) a lot. And I I think for me it is as much like manic as it is um, like depressed I guess and I tried to like I guess encompass both extremes um, because I see Alaska as a kind of like extreme place where you have you know darkness uh, um, in the winter you know and Mm -hmm. the 24 hour sun in the summer um, in the northern parts of Alaska so um, I think that in itself um, can be seen as a kind of Uh, mental state, right? Mm -hmm. And so I tried to use that as a way of thinking about the brain and the functions of the the chemicals in the brain. And, um, you know, as a poet, it's it's hard not to think about mental illness Mm -hmm. (laughs) just because there are so many poets um, and writers that I know who have various forms of... um,
1: uh, mental illnesses or yeah. depression or what not so you've got a lot of scientific sounding lingo in there there's um, ataxia, asphyxia phlogiston um, is that coming from the same vein thinking about the body the the technical aspects the
0: well body? it's also trying to um, use um, non-fictional language um, in order to talk about Alaska as well so I'm I'm trying to, like, use all my resources and create something that sounds like a kind of cracked uh, guidebook, right, Mm -hmm. or um, uh, encyclopedia or something like that. Um, So there's, there's like, for me, there's, like, this sad attempt at trying to pin something down by using scientific language Mm -hmm. and trying to define things that are mysterious and ungraspable. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: You've got, um, I'm really fascinated with this idea of Alaska in your book being not necessarily uh, a reflection of the real place, but just sort of a reflection of an idea of a place. Um, In one of the final poems of the book, it's it's titled Explanation, and it's a series of statements, each prefaced with a phrase, it is true, it is not true. Um, The final phrase reads, it is not true. The hoax was not my idea. I claim many ideas that are not my own. Volcanic pressure under the permafrost makes it so. But everyone knows licking a glacier can change your DNA and reprogram your fate. Um, I was really fascinated with the idea of a hoax. Mm -hmm. Um, It's such a strong word for what I feel like you did with this book. I mean, what what exactly was the path that you took in researching this uh, place? It was kind of a an off path route that you took to get there, right? Um, researching Alaska. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I use
0: research as a way to just meditate or, you know, to think about the place, to fantasize about the place itself. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, you know, I read a lot about Alaska. I mean, I, I really did. You can't tell it all (laughs) by reading the book and it's totally fine, but, um, it's just, that's the way, you know, it, uh, it worked its way through me, I guess um, and I don't have that kind of maggoty brain where like facts stick to it anyway, so it's just sort of a um a way of um filtering facts, and you know there's actually a lot of truth in those in that statement. It's just maybe you slipping paradigms from one thing. To another, like for instance, termites like lick their mother, the mother termite might to change their DNA to find out what to be next. So I just sort of rearrange the terms a little bit hmm. in terms of, you um, know, in, in that last, um, uh, and that's that last fragment of the poem, and that's basically, um, you know, what a lot of poetry does is just work by, by metaphor or analogy.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I felt like your your book was definitely far removed from any sort of encyclopedic uh, analysis of what, what we think Alaska should be.
0: Well, and also, I think that, you know, there are these guidebooks you, you get when you go to a place. And um, there's no way to... Um, write a good guidebook in a way because when, once you go there you're changed right and you can't possibly write what you would have needed to know um, when you are actually there for the first time so there's this kind of paradox of you know trying to recover that initial state of newness which once you know enough to write a guidebook is so far gone so far beyond you mm-hmm. so you read a lot of Travel books. Oh, you know, I read everything. I read. Mm-hmm. Uh, I. I'm just using that as an example of mm-hmm.
1: of something that tries to be factual and helpful. Um, mm-hmm. Does that mean? Yeah. What What about the idea of the frontier? I kind of. I kind of got a feeling from your book um, of Alaska as this barren, unexplored frontier. Was that Was that intentional? Oh, definitely. I
0: mean, that's what I. I mean by. Marking our the its place in our national consciousness, so mm-hmm. um, I think there is still a sense of adventure when people think about Alaska. You, know, you can still buy a town, you know,
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> things mm-hmm.
0: get really bad here. We can always go to Alaska, yeah, and I tried to think of the line in that way, too, as a kind of um, frontier.
1: And so a lot of the lines are kind of like packed. Mm-hmm. Um, Were you worried about writing? about such an alienating place were you worried that it would alienate your readers? Oh, it well, it's not like I said,
0: it's not really. I tried to find little bits of Alaska everywhere. I mean, I wrote the mm-hmm. book in um let's see in about probably about five or six different states. Mm-hmm. Um and so I would f- I would find like in Taos, New Mexico, there was the Royal Gorge Bridge and to me that signified a kind of dizzying vertiginous terror that um that represents alaska Mm -hmm. Uh, the bridge would shake when when trucks went over it and uh it was just this kind of vast sense of um of groundlessness i guess uh that so anyway Like, I didn't necessarily think it was something that was totally foreign because Mm -hmm. I was trying to find bits of it wherever I
1: was and, you know, could easily identify those places. Mm -hmm. I think that came through as well. But um, I really did enjoy reading both of your books. And I'm so glad that you could join us on the show today. Um, thanks to our engineer, Chaz Barrett, and thanks for all our listen- listeners for tuning in today. Uh, my name is Rachel Harkai. You've been listening to Living Writers Show. Show archives are available as podcasts on iTunes. Just go to the iTunes store online and search for Living Writers. And stay tuned to WCBN FM Ann Arbor 88.3.
2: Thank you. Over oh, yeah. here, the ladies all sweet. But there's never a rose And over there The roses are frightened